Hello and welcome. This is Bill Allen coming to you from downtown Tyler, Texas in the West Irwin Church of Christ. Glad to have you joining in today and I appreciate all of those who watch these lessons either live or later. Uh, glad to have you along with us. We're excited. I am excited. Let me put it that way. Me and this mouse in my pocket. We are excited about uh, the lesson today as we go through Paul's mission journeys and uh, going through modern day Turkey and that first journey and then on the other ones going from there across into uh, what we know as Europe and, and uh, Greece the northern and southern parts especially uh, he begins to uh, develop relationships with some uh, congregations and individuals and uh, that leads him to write letters uh, to these churches and these people that he has uh, had such an impact on and has and have come to mean uh, so much to him. One of the places that he hasn't gone is Italy and specifically the city of Rome, the center of the empire. So he writes the book of Romans to the church at Rome. He knows many people there. We know that from Acts, uh, from Romans chapter 16. And we see him addressing many that are there and talking to them as he typically does in his letters, uh, telling folks hi where he's writing to and then telling them hi from people they know that are with him. But uh, in, the, in the case of uh, the book of Romans, he hasn't been there yet, but he, it's not because he hasn't wanted to and he does plan to. He doesn't realize it as he's writing it that he will get there, but it will be uh, under arrest and for trial after appealing to the Roman Emperor Caesar, knowing that he would get a fairer trial before the pagan Roman court than he would before his own people. So um, the book of Romans is an outstanding book. It's not my favorite, perhaps my second favorite. Uh, because I love the Gospel of John, and but I also love Romans. It's got my favorite chapter in it, Romans chapter 8. And uh, my favorite books include John, the Gospel, and Romans, uh, Psalms, Job. Uh, those, are, uh, those, those, are, those are pretty much my top ones, uh, but they're all wonderful, of course, all inspired and authoritative, and the book of Romans is an incredible, incredible study. When I have covered uh, the book of Romans in Bible classes or in sermon series, including here at West Irwin, just in the last couple of years, uh, it always has a huge impact on me, first of all, and on those who are a part of the studies as well. I like to call it the, the uh, righteousness living because Paul talks about that. And so what I want us to do today is to breeze through the book of Romans. It's horrible because we could spend as much time as we're studying today on each individual chapter and more. But uh, I want us to take a summary look. And if you haven't read the book of Romans, then read it. And if you have, then read it again. Uh, there have been several through the years that have said, including in Churches of Christ, if you get Romans, God gets you. And I firmly believe that because the book of Romans is that powerful and that extraordinary. Uh, I'll give a few little uh, uh, introductory things. I divide the book of Romans really into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 that deal with the righteousness of God, how we are made righteous. And that the answer to that question is by faith. It's through the grace of God, the righteousness of God 
that comes by faith from beginning to end, he says in chapter 1. And he goes through that for 11 strong chapters with perhaps a little parenthesis in chapter 6 where he talks about what it looks like to live as a slave to Christ. But the rest of the time, he is speaking specifically about how there is nothing we do in order to earn or deserve or merit uh, salvation, but strictly it is through the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed for us. Then in chapter 12, it takes a turn, beginning with the words, therefore, in view of God's mercies that he has talked about for 11 chapters, he calls on us to uh, offer our bodies up as living sacrifices. One day, and not just within a few years from this time, uh, less than 10 years, he would, as he writes this, he would, uh, his body physically would be offered up as a sacrifice uh, when he is beheaded under Emperor Nero in Rome. But he has a lot of living still to do and a lot of writing still to do, including this great book of Romans. Uh, but he calls on us to be living sacrifices, to do what Jesus said, and that is to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, be a living sacrifice, and follow after him. Paul would say, tell the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And in chapters 12 through really 15, but we'll say 12 through 16, that would be the second part of the book of Romans. And it is the practical part, the application, because what does it mean that we uh, have been uh, saved by grace through faith, that we are made righteous uh, and receive the righteousness of God, not our own, but the righteousness of God that comes by faith? What, how does that impact our lives? Well, it impacts it in every way. And certainly Paul in Romans 12 through 16 lists several different specific examples of what it means to live that way for Christ as a living sacrifice, whether it's being submissive to civil authorities or loving one another, honoring others above ourselves, uh, not demanding our own preferences, but seeking to do what will build others up rather than ourselves, and on and on uh, he goes. So let's look starting at chapter one. We're not going to read it all, obviously. I really want to, but we won't. Uh, but I do want to read the first few verses because this is how this powerful statement uh, begins. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he, proclaimed, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, now verse three, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a powerful statement from the very start, much like Hebrews starts out talking about how Jesus ascended to the very throne room of the father with his own blood from his own sacrifice. Uh, here, Paul says, he announces that Jesus Christ was proclaimed to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection. Uh, a great statement and a great uh, beginning. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, his first message is, all have sinned. Whether it's Jew or non-Jew, Gentiles, all have sinned. There is none righteous, not even one, he will say in chapter 3 and also that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory 
in chapter 3, verse 23. But first, he announces that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are guilty before God. They didn't have the law. And yet, Paul says here in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed, in verse 18, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Oh, they may not have had the law of Moses. They may not have heard the great story of the gospel of Christ uh, in the New Testament times. But what they do know is from creation itself, that there is a God, there is a creator, there is a maker, and he is divine. He is much greater than I am, and he is worthy of my worship. I don't understand a lot about him if you don't have scripture but you do know that there is a God and that he has made everything that you see and that he is worthy of our worship. And so he announces that the Gentiles uh, have sinned before God. And three times in this section at the end of chapter one, he says God gave them over. He gave them over to sexual immorality, uh, to those who would uh, uh, have uh, a same-sex relationship. Our culture accepts it, but God never has and never does and never will. In Scripture, it is condemned, and it's condemned here in chapter 1, even among the worldly people who are non-Jews, the Gentiles. Uh, he says that they inflamed in their lust uh, for one another, men after men and women after women. And it has never been God's way and certainly isn't God's way today in spite of the fact that our culture accepts it wholeheartedly. Uh, God condemns that. He condemns every kind of sexual immorality, but he also condemns idolatry in this chapter. The Gentiles worship and serve the created things rather than the creator, serving the creature rather than the creator. And Paul condemns that, and he says God gave them over. And then at the end of chapter one, he lists a whole bunch of sins um, that God gave them over. And he also mentions that they who know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do their, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a stern, stern warning. But in chapter two, he says the Jews are no better. The Jews, yes, he says, and he is one. He says, yes, we have the law of Moses, but we don't follow it. And the true followers, the true Jews, he says, are those who do God's will and who obey God and follow him and live the way he wants us to live, whether they have the law or not. Uh, and so uh, Paul condemns the Jews, not because they didn't know the law, but because they had it and they knew it, but they didn't follow it. And then, as I said earlier in chapter 3, he sums it up by saying, There is none righteous, no, not even one, quoting from the Old Testament, starting in verse 10. And he goes on to say that all of those things that we have lived our lives for have been uh, sinful in the eyes of a holy and righteous God, so that none of us can look at our own lives and say, Well, I am righteous on my own because it's just not true. And so Paul says, starting in verse 21 of Romans 3, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God 
has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Earlier in chapter 1, at the very beginning, Paul had talked about the righteousness of God and how willing he is to preach this gospel even in the center of the empire, the city of Rome itself. That great verse, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That righteousness that is from by faith from first to last, for the righteous will live by faith. Uh, he quotes from Habakkuk 2 there. And in chapter 3, he goes back to that theme, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And so that verse that says, all have sinned and, and fall short of God's glory, it's in the very context of salvation. It's an acknowledgement that we've all sinned and can't save ourselves, and that's why we all are uh, eligible to be saved by the response of faith, trusting in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice. And we'll say more about that when we do get to chapter 6. In uh, and, and Romans chapter 4, he gives the best example he could think of for the Jewish Christians there in Rome of righteousness that comes by faith, and that is Father Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus and Paul. And yet he was the one in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he quotes in this passage. He says, God credited, Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Paul makes a big point of that, and he says Abraham didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. Yes, he was a good man and the father of the faithful, but he was imperfect. He was a sinner just like the rest of us and could not save himself. But God credited to Abraham as righteousness because he believed. He believed God's word. He trusted in God that God would ultimately fulfill his promises. And aren't we glad? In chapter 5, he moves from the example of Abraham to the example of Adam. Adam who opened up sin into humanity's existence. And because of that, Paul says, sin has reigned since that very day uh, when Adam sinned. And Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, the one thing God told them not to do. Just like we ourselves, in their selfishness, they disobeyed. Why? Because they wanted to call their own shots. They wanted to be God themselves and not follow the will of the one who created them. And so Paul, in chapter 5, throughout that chapter, he talks about that contrast between the life that comes through Jesus Christ, the one man, Jesus Christ, and the death that comes through Adam. It's not a sense that we are responsible for Adam's sin, 
Scripture is clear. Ezekiel 18 and other passages say, the soul that sins is the soul that shall die. Uh, we don't bear the sins and the consequences of those sins uh, in the eyes of God for our eternal salvation's sake uh, because of others. But we do sometimes have our lives made difficult because of the sin of others and because of our own sin. In this great passage in chapter 5 are the, found these great words in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might even dare to die. And that's true. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's the gospel right there. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred not when we were on our best day, but when we were on our worst. That's what Jesus saw from the cross. He saw my need for his blood and his forgiveness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how God demonstrated his love to us. And it's an incredible, incredible statement in Romans chapter 5. And he's made such a strong case for righteousness of God coming by faith from beginning to end, first to last, A to Z, that he takes a step back in chapter 6. And he starts off by saying this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Why would he ask that rhetorical question? Because if you're really preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how it sounds. It truly is good news. It sounds too good to be true, but it is not too good to be true. It actually is true, but it is so very good news. Um, and so he says, so, well, if, if this is all about faith, then, then why don't we just go on sinning so that this grace that saves us uh, will really be worthwhile. Let's make Jesus' death worthwhile by uh, falling into sin more and more. Well, Paul says, by no means. Absolutely not. We should not do that. Why is that? Well, in this case, he takes them back to their baptism. He takes them back to that moment when they accepted this salvation that is strictly by grace through faith. And he talks about their response of faith. By no means, he says in verse 2, we are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Those words would have absolutely no impact and they would not make sense if there were Christians at Rome in the church who had not been baptized. Because Paul says the reason we don't continue sinning so that grace might increase is because we've been baptized. We died to sin. We've been buried with Christ through baptism into death. And we've been raised out of that water of baptism in order to live a new life. And that's why. That's why we don't sin. Not so that we'll be saved, because we are saved. Not so that we can attain some new life, because we've been raised to live a new life. We died to sin. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death, and we've been raised to live 
a new life. In chapter 6, he gives us a, a preview of what's going to come starting in chapter 12, talking about that new life. And he says we're slaves to um, Christ, not self. We're slaves to righteousness, not sin. And we seek to do that out of a heart of gratitude. And he summarizes it in chapter 6, verse 23, when he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, that's the gift of God's grace, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 7, Paul affirms and acknowledges, look, I still have trouble with this. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I find myself doing. And we appreciate his frustration because we feel the same, and we do the same. And then at the end of chapter 7, uh, he asks this question, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he answers the question himself, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in chapter 8, this great, great chapter, Bill's favorite chapter in the Bible. It's just, if you look at uh, uh, my daily Bible, <laughs> when, I, when I read through my daily Bible, I... I mark things, I highlight things in different colors, um, and boy, Romans 8, let me tell you, is almost entirely highlighted, beginning with verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My dear friend, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you died to sin and been buried with Christ through baptism into death and been raised to live a new life? If not, I hope you'll consider that, and if so, then you know in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This great Romans chapter 8 contrasts living according to the flesh with living according to the Spirit, that Holy Spirit that is living inside of us uh, at our baptisms. We, we are uh, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 2, verse 38 says, and so that we might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He speaks about that spiritual life and that gift of the Holy Spirit throughout Romans chapter 8. He reminds us that we are to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. He calls us to live that way and to live according to that Spirit. And he says in Romans 8 verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, he says, we're under an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by his spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then these great verses, starting in verse 14 of Romans 8, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That was exactly the, the emotional term that Jesus used in praying to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before his death. Paul says that we are able to use that same term to call on our God the same way, dear Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
And then this great statement in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, nowhere does scripture say we're not going to suffer. In fact, just the opposite. We saw it in the gospels. Jesus himself said, I'm telling you, you're, people are going to make you suffer thinking that they're doing the will of the Father. So get ready. They're going to treat you the way they treated me. Paul says the same thing, but he says it's worth it. It's worth it. And he says, we know that all of creation is groaning, waiting for that redemption that will come at the end of time. And Paul says in verse 24, in this hope, the, res the re resurrection in this hope, we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I wait, understandably, patiently, not so much sometimes. But our lives are filled with hope because of the resurrection, but it's an unrealized hope. We're not there yet. And then verse 26, these great comforting words. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When you're going through something so intense, so difficult that you can't even find the words to pray, the Spirit within you prays. And that Holy Spirit that's within us hears those Spirit words and groans and takes them to the throne of the Father so that even during those intensely emotional, difficult times, we are heard. We're heard by the Creator and Savior. Um, in verse 31, or let's start with verse 28. Let's get there. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This passage does not say all things work together for good because that's just not true. Some translations say that. But all things that happen to us, that's not the subject. The subject is God. God works in and through all things for those, for the good of those who have come to trust him and who have accepted this righteousness that comes by faith. My friend Daryl Willis on uh, this past Sunday said that it could be that that verse is better translated, God works with and through those who love him and are called according to his purpose to bring about that good in his world. I think that's true. I also think the way it's understood to, traditionally is true, that God works all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Well, this verse continues on and ends in a great big, huge way. Starting in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Another one of those verses that you better have marked in one way or another. And he goes on to say in verse 35, who shall separate us? from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be, to be slaughtered. And then verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39 are some of the most powerful statements in Scripture. And it gives us encouragement and hope even during the most difficult times. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals specifically with this question. Okay, now that we've got all these Gentiles coming into the church, what do we do with them? How, do we, how does that work in God's sovereign plan? And so he fights through all of that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he says, my heart's desire is for my brethren, the Jews, to be saved. And he says, oh, they're passionate for God, all right. But they don't have a passion that is according to knowledge. They're passionate about the wrong things. And Paul says, I just, I would myself be accursed if it meant their salvation, but he knows that that can't be the case. But he talks about that. He talks about how the falling away of the Jews brought about the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles, as we saw beginning in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. And he talks about this great statement of salvation uh, in Romans chapter 10. Uh, look at verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's that part of the response of faith that deals with believing from our heart, repenting of our sins, just as other scripture says, uh, confessing that faith with our mouth, as he says here, and being baptized into Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans 6, to be able to be raised to live a new life. And then Paul, in the verses that follow in Romans 10, says how important it is for us to share that message. How can people believe in the one they haven't heard, and how can they hear unless someone tells them that someone, my friend, is you, and it's me. Uh, Paul goes on and quotes many scriptures that talk about how the Gentiles are going to come in. He goes back and forth throughout chapter 11. And then finally, he throws up his hand at the end of chapter 11 and says this, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says there's a whole lot about this plan of salvation and the work of God that I don't understand. But that doesn't mean I don't consider it and I don't study it and I don't dwell on it. But he says ultimately you throw up your hands in praise to God and you say to him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter 11, as I said, we take a turn. This starts the second part of this great book. And that is the practical application of everything that he said so far. Again, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I always think about the Phillips, J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. 
and the world is trying to do that as hard today as ever I can remember in my lifetime. But we can't let it happen. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to do this as an act of worship before God. And we are to not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, but rather we are to be transformed, not conformed, and seek to transform the world. Then in chapter 12, he starts out with all the practical application. Verse 3 talks about the many gifts of the church, just as he did to the Corinthians and the Ephesians. He talks about how we're one body but many members, and the grace that is given us through these gifts is different for everybody. But God does it for the building up of his church, and each of us should use our gifts, whatever they are, to serve the Lord and to help build up his church. Uh, throughout Romans 12, there's just one great statement after another. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Is there another message that our society and our culture here in 21st century America needs to hear more than that? Hate what is evil. Cling, hold on to what is good. Our, our society today is calling evil good and good evil, and it's remarkable the turn that we've made. We must get back to the word of God as Christians, as the church. I'm not as concerned with what goes on in our world and even in our country as I am with what goes on with the people of God because that's where the witness is. That's where the true change will come. It won't come in an election. It will only come when you and I are living out these words of this Bible, whatever the cost, every day. And that's how they transformed the world in the first century. And that's how it will be transformed today. I love uh, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You want a three-step way to live? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. He calls us to continue to have our spiritual fervor, our passion. He calls on us to be hospitable and to share he calls on us to rejoice with those who rejoice in verse 15 and mourn with those who mourn. And I really believe that it's much easier for us to mourn with those who mourn and share in their sufferings than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Instead, we feel envious and resentful, but it should not be. We should be glad that they're going through something good. We should rejoice that there are good things happening to them, even though Satan wants us to feel like we want to say, well, how come it didn't happen for me? Jesus went to the cross for us so that we could be saved, so that we could have this righteousness of God that comes by faith. And so let's rejoice with those who rejoice and let's mourn with those who mourn. And then he says some very hard words starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It doesn't always depend on us, but as far as it can, let's try to do that. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. And as I'm prone to say, I'd rather pour a bucket of burning coals on my enemy's head. But Jesus said to love your enemies, and that's the example he gave for us by loving us. When we were still sinners, Romans 5 said, Christ died for us. 
So in the same way, we turn that over to God. Amy Morin in her book, 13 Things Mentally uh, Strong People Don't Do, says they don't give away their power. And I think what she's talking about in that chapter is they don't hold grudges. They don't seek revenge. But in our in scripture, it says, leave that to God. Turn loose of that. Just as Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and not to the people who were screaming for his blood around him. First Peter 2 says, we are to do the same. And the great summary statement is seen in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't fight fire with fire. I know that's the American way, but that's not the Christian way. That's not the way of the cross. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. In chapter 13 and 14 and 15, he gets very specific about certain things, starting with being submissive to the civil authorities. I realize there's a lot we don't like about our civil authorities, but I can tell you they're as bad as they, things are today in 21st century America. I wouldn't trade places with anybody in first century uh, Rome. Not at all. Not at all. And yet what they were told is to be submissive to the civil authorities, that they're there for a purpose to maintain justice and order in their world. And so they are to be respected. And he says that we should follow and obey the law out of conscience, not just so that we won't get punished. And we know that scripture also says when it comes down to obeying God or the, the laws of man, we are to obey God. But there are so many instances where that's not the case. And it may not be our preference. It may not be what we like. It may not be who we voted for. But if it doesn't violate the word of God, then we are to be submissive. Not a popular word in American culture today. Certainly not on social media. But we are to submit to the civil authorities. Give honor to whom honor is due, Paul says in chapter 13 of Romans. And then he goes on and he talks about the call to love one another. That second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, he quotes in verse 9. And he says this in verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Ask yourself, is this the loving thing to do? You can search through the scriptures and say, is this condemned or, or allowed? But you can begin with the more general question of, is this the loving thing to do? That's what Jesus meant when he gave this commandment in Luke chapter 10. And then someone asked him, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to love? Who, who is it that I have to love? And Jesus says, well, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Do the loving thing, Jesus says. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so then verse chapter 14 begins with this verse, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, there's a lot in Romans 14 and 15, and we won't have time to look at it. Uh, it was one of the hardest sermons that I preached in the series here that I preached at the beginning of 2021. And I can tell you, these are hard sayings. And you ask, okay, what is a disputable matter then? Well, Brother Leroy Garrett years ago used to say, well, whatever, if it's under dispute, it's a disputable matter. And so you want to treat that brother or sister with whom you disagree with love and with honor and consideration and humility and, yes, even respect. 
Accept that person whose faith is weak. Don't do anything that would cause your brother to stumble, these chapters say. Don't do anything that would go against your own conscience. But remember, remember that you are not to destroy that brother or sister for whom Christ died by demanding your way or your preference or your rights. Really, that's what he says time and time again throughout Romans chapter 14 and 15. Verse 13 of Romans 14, Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. We keep reading very similar things in chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but rather he took upon our suffering, our insults, our persecution, our death that was meant for us. And so he calls on us to be considerate of one another and to live lives of love and consideration and sacrifice. Verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. That's how we should live our lives. And as we have the opportunity to stand up for the faith, we do that. And when someone needs to be confronted, as Paul tells the Ephesians, we speak the truth in love. But we don't sacrifice love and we don't sacrifice truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And Paul emphasizes that in these chapters in Romans 12 through 15 especially. And then he goes on and he talks to them about how he's looking forward to being with them. In chapter 16, as I said, he talks about all the people that he knows and he asks them to send them greetings. And there are so many wonderful workers that he mentions in this passage, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Phoebe, that wonderful Christian worker that he mentions in the first couple of verses, uh, Andronicus and Junia, verse 7, Mary, verse 6. Uh, who was a fellow worker of his. There are some, he said, have been in prison with me. It's just an incredible, incredible list of people that Paul knows, having never been to that city. It's just amazing. And then verse 16 of Romans 16 says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so we don't do that in, these, in this culture today. I think it would be very inappropriate. But what we do is we give a holy handshake or an appropriate holy hug, perhaps, but we accept one another as Christ accepted us, and we greet each other with affection and respect and love. And then he says at the end of verse 16, all the churches of Christ send greetings. Why is it called the church of Christ? Because that's what it is. It's Christ's church. To the Corinthians, he wrote to the church of God at Corinth. To the Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians. But here he says all the churches of Christ send their greetings. What a great, great statement. At the end of chapter uh, 16 of Romans, it ends with this great, powerful statement, and that's how we'll end this study today. I'm a little bit out of breath, and I hate, I hate that in just these minutes, we have read through one of the greatest things that have ever been written in any context, but that's as it that's the only way it can be. And next week, we'll be moving along with Paul as he makes his ultimate journey 
uh, to Rome and writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon while he is under house arrest in Rome. But for now, let's end this study of Romans today with these words, the way the apostle himself ends this book in chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen indeed. I pray that you will have a wonderful weekend and look forward to being with you again on Tuesday.